0: Section 8 of History of New England, Sixteen Thirty to Sixteen Forty Nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of New England, Sixteen Thirty to Sixteen Forty Nine by John Winthrop. Section 8, Sixteen Thirty Six, Part Two. A Continuation of the History of New England. Footnote the manuscript of this the second part of the journal after having been copied by savage while still in his possession was destroyed by fire in eighteen twenty five though his transcript as he tells us had not undergone perfect verification quote beyond sixteen thirty nine there is no reason to think that his usual faithfulness is lacking while therefore the loss is greatly to be regretted we can be confident of having an accurate story in footnote sixteen thirty six De October, after Mr. Endicott and our men were departed from the Pequod footnote now the Thames River in footnote the twenty men of Saybrook lay windbound there and went to fetch some of the indian's corn and Having fetched every man one sackful to their boat, they returned for more and having loaded themselves, the Indians set upon them, so they laid down their corn and gave fire upon them, and the Indians shot arrows at them. The place was open for the distance of musket shot, and the Indians kept the covert, save when they came forth, about ten at a time, and discharged their arrows. The English put themselves into a single file, and some ten only, who had pieces which could reach them, shot. The others stood ready to keep them from breaking in upon our men. So they continued the most part of the afternoon. Our men killed some of them, as they supposed, and hurt others, and they shot only one of ours, and he was armed, all the rest being without arms. Footnote armed, that is, provided with defensive armor, in footnote. He was shot through the leg. Their arrows were all shot compass, footnote, to keep compass as an archery, according to the century dictionary, to preserve a due elevation. To reach the distant foe, the arrows of necessity described a high arc within view of the soldiers who had time to dodge. The helplessness of the savages before firearms is very apparent, in footnote. So as our men, standing single, could easily see and avoid them, and one was employed to gather up their arrows. At last they emptied their sacks and retired safe to their boat. About two days after, five men of Sabreck went up the river about four miles to fetch hay in a meadow on Pequot's side. The grass was so high some Pequots, being hidden it, set upon our men, and one that had hay on his back, they took. The others fled to their boat, one of them having five arrows in him, but yet recovered he who was taken was a godly young man called blank butterfield whereupon the meadow was named butterfield meadow about fourteen days after six of saybrook being sent to keep the house in their cornfield about two miles from the fort three of them went forth on fowling which the lieutenant had strictly forbidden them two pieces, and the third only a sword suddenly about one hundred indians came out of the covert and set upon them he who had the sword brake through them, and received only two shot, not dangerous, and escaped to the house, which was not a bow shot off, and persuaded the other two to follow him. But they stood still till the Indians came and took them, and carried them away with their pieces. Soon after they burnt down the said house, and some outhouses and haystacks within a bow shot of the fort, and killed the cow, and shot diverse others. But they all came home with arrows in them. 21st meantunema the sachem of narangnacet being sent for by the governor came to boston with two of canonicus's sons and another sachem and near twenty synapse cutchemaken gave us notice the day before the governor sent twenty musketeers to meet him at roxbury he came to boston about noon the governor had called together most of the magistrates and ministers to give countenance to our proceedings and to advise with them about the terms of peace it was dinner-time and the sachems and their council dined by themselves in the same room where the governor dined and their synapses were sent to the inn after dinner me declared what he had to say to us in blank propositions which were to this effect that they had always loved the english and desired firm peace with us that they would continue in war with the Pequods and their confederates till they were subdued and desired we should so do they would deliver our enemies to us or kill them that if any of their should kill our cattle that we would not co- kill them but cause them to make satisfaction that they would now make a firm peace, and two months hence they would send us a present the governor told them they should have answer the next morning in the morning we met again and concluded the peace upon the articles underwritten which the governor subscribed and they also subscribed with their marks and cut also but because we could not well make them understand the articles perfectly we agreed to send a copy of them to mr williams who could best interpret them to them. Footnote. Roger Williams had a special skill in the Indian languages, as is evidenced by his Key Unto the Language of America, London, 1643, reprinted in 1866 by the Narragansett Club, in footnote. So after dinner, they took leave and were conveyed out of town by some musketeers and dismissed with volley of shot. The Articles. 1. a firm peace between us and our friends of other plantations, if they consent, and their confederates, if they will observe the Articles, etc., and our posterities. 2. Neither party to make peace with the Pequod's without the other's consent. 3. Not to harbor, etc., the Pequod's, etc. 4. To put to death or deliver over murderers, etc. 5. To return our fugitive servants, etc. 6. We to give them notice when we go against the Pequod's, and they send to us some guides. Seventh, free trade between us. Eighth, none of them to come near our plantations during the wars with the Pequods without some Englishman or known Indian. Ninth, to continue to the posterity of both parties. The governor of Plymouth wrote to the deputy, footnote, Winthrop, in footnote, that we had occasioned a war, etc., by provoking the Pequods and no more, and about the peace with the Narragansetts, etc., The deputy took it ill, as there was reason, and returned answer accordingly, and made it appear, first, that there was as much done as could be expected, considering they fled from us, and we could not follow them in our armor, neither had any to guide us in their country. Second, we went not to make war upon them, but to do justice, etc., and having killed thirteen of them for four or five, which they had murdered of ours, and destroyed sixty wigwams, etc., we were not much behind with them. Third, they had no cause to glory over us when they saw that they could not save themselves nor their houses and corn from so few of ours fourth if we had left but one hundred of them living those might have done us as much hurt as they have or are likely to do fifth it was very likely they would have taken notice of our advantage against them and would have in still or have sought peace if god had not deprived them of common reason about the middle of this month, John Tilly, master of a bark coming down Connecticut River, went on shore in a canoe three miles above the fort to kill Fowl. And having shot off his piece, many Indians arose out of the cover and took him and killed one the other who was in the canoe. And having shot off his piece, many Indians arose out of the cover and took him and killed one other who was in the canoe. This Tilly was a very stout man and of great understanding. They cut off his hands and sent them before and after cut off his feet. He lived three days after his hands were cut off and themselves confessed that he was a stout man because he cried not in his torture. About this time two houses were burnt, and all the goods in them to a great value. One was Shaw at Watertown, and the other Jackson of Salem, both professors, and Shaw the day before admitted of the former church. This was very observable in Shaw that he concealed his estate, and made show as if he had been poor, and was not clear of some unrighteous passages. One Mrs. Hutchinson, footnote, Here begins the story of a most painful and memorable episode of our early history. No other chapter of Massachusetts history is so full of perplexities. Mrs. Hutchinson came from Lincolnshire to America with her husband, a worthy but not notable man, and their children drawn to America through her admiration for John Cotton, whose ministrations while he was rector of St. Baltoff's Church she had much enjoyed. She was a woman of kind heart and practical capacity of various kinds, possessed too of a fervent spirit and an intellect so keen that she was held to be the quote, masterpiece of woman's wit. End quote. Johnson, Wonderworking Providence, Book One, Chapter 42. She attained great influence among the women of the settlement, which soon extended to the men as well. And when she denounced the ministers of the colony, excepting Cotton and her brother in law Wheelwright, as essentially lacking, she carried with her the boston church hardly any but winthrop and wilson the pastor withstanding her since the other churches of the settlement took opposite ground a quarrel arose very bitter and dangerous the details of which may be best learned from winthrop the ecclesiastical dispute as to justification by faith and justification by works is as old as the apostles paul and james mrs hutchinson's idea was that saving grace went only to such as possessed faith and that this grace having been received the recipient was above law hence the term antinomian was hurled at her and her sympathizers a term expressly repudiated by wheelwright and certainly unwarranted for the hutchinsonians while scorning legalism did not mean to cut loose from moral obligations undoubtedly however there was danger that in minds confused with a controversial jargon mrs hutchinson's ideas might be taken as countenancing licentiousness and in one memorable case that of john underhill hereafter narrated they certainly were taken as a cloak for loose living winthrop in the journal tells the story only briefly but in his other work a short story of the rise reign and ruin of the antinomians famulus and libertines that infected the churches of massachusetts bay a book, some extracts from which are included within the present reprint, he gives a detailed answer. End footnote. A member of the Church of Boston, a woman of ready wit and bold spirit, brought over with her two dangerous errors: First, that the person of the Holy Ghost dwells in a justified person. Second, that no sanctification can help to evidence to us our justification. From these two grew many branches as one our union with the holy ghost so as a christian remains dead to every spiritual action and hath no gifts nor graces other than such as are in hypocrites nor any other sanctification but the holy ghost himself there joined with her in these opinions a brother of hers one mr wheelwright a silenced minister sometimes in england twenty-fifth the other ministers in the bay hearing of these things came to boston at the time of a general court and entered conference in private with them, to the end they might know the certainty of these things, that if need were, they might write to the Church of Boston about them, to prevent, if it were possible, the dangers, which seemed hereby to hang over that and the rest of the churches. At this conference Mr. Cotton was present, and gave satisfaction to them, so as he agreed with them all in the point of sanctification, and so did Mr. Wheelwright, so as they all did hold that sanctification did help to evidence justification the same he had delivered plainly in public diverse times but for the indwelling of the person of the holy ghost he held that still as some others of the ministers did but not union with the person of the holy ghost as mrs hutchinson and others did so as to amount to a personal union mr cotton being requested by the general court with some other ministers to assist some of the magistrates in compiling a body of fundamental laws did this court present a model of moses his judicials compiled in an exact method which were taken into further consideration till the next general court. Footnote. Mr. Worthington, C. Ford, in Proceedings of the Massachusetts Historical Society, 2nd Series, 26th Volume, pages 274 to 284, gives reasons for identifying this code drafted by Cotton with the Abstract of the Laws of New England, London, 1641, reprinted in Forces, Historical Tracts, Volume 3, but never adopted. In footnote. 30th. Some of the Church of Boston, being of the opinion of Mrs. Hutchinson, had labored to have Mr. Wheelwright, footnote, John Wheelwright, born near the end of the 16th century, lived till 1679, the patriarch of the New England clergy. Educated at Cambridge, minister of Alford, near Old Boston, married to a sister of Anne Hutchinson, like her he came under the influence of Cotton, and immigrated to America in 1636. In the Antinomian Controversy, he was a conspicuous champion of the Covenant of Grace, undergoing exile at the hands of the upholders of a covenant of works for a fast-day sermon preached in January 1637. The sermon is still extant, but of it and the whole Antinomian Controversy, we may say, with C.F. Adams, quote, Not only were the points obscure, but the discussion was carried on in a jargon which has become unintelligible, end quote. Three episodes of Massachusetts history, pages Most of the antinomian exiles went to Rhode Island, but Wheelwright went to New Hampshire, where he is venerated as the founder of Exeter and Hampton. In middle life, during a sojourn in England, he was made much of by Cromwell, in footnote, to be called to be a teacher there. It was propounded the last Lord's Day, and was moved again this day for resolution. One of the church stood up and said he could not consent, etc. Footnote, this was no doubt Winthrop, in footnote. His reason was because the church being well furnished already with able ministers whose spirits they knew, and whose labors God had blessed in much love and sweet peace, he thought it not fit, no necessity urging, to put the welfare of the church to the least hazard, as he feared they should do, by calling in one whose spirit they knew not, and one who seemed to dissent in judgment, and instanced in two points which he delivered in a late exercise there, first, that a believer was more than a creature, second, that the person of the Holy Ghost and a believer were united hereupon the governor spake that he marvelled at this seeing mr cotton had lately approved his doctrine to this mr cotton answered that he did not remember the first and desired mr wheelwright to explain his meaning he denied not the points but showed upon what occasion he delivered them whereupon there being an endeavour to make a reconciliation the first replied that although mr wheelwright and himself might likely agree about the point and though he thought reverently of his godliness and abilities, so as he could be content to live under such a ministry, yet, seeing he was apt to raise doubtful disputations, he could not consent to choose him to that place. Whereupon the church gave way that he might be called to a new church, to be gathered at Mount Woolaston, now Braintree. Diverse of the brethren took offense at the said speech against Mr. Wheelwright, whereupon the same brother spake in the congregation the next day to this effect that hearing that some of the brethren were offended as a former speech and for that offences were dangerous he was desirous to give satisfaction the offence he said was in three things first for that he had charged the brother in public and for a thing so long since delivered and had not first dealt with him privately for this he acknowledged it was a failing but the occasion was that when he heard the points delivered he took them in a good sense as spoken figuratively seeing the whole scope of his doctrine was sound and savouring of the spirit of god but hearing very lately that he was suspected to hold such opinions it caused him to think he spake as he meant the second cause of offence was that in his speech appeared some bitterness for that he answered that they knew well his manner of speech was always earnest in things which he conceived to be serious and professed that he did love that brother's person and did honour the gifts and graces of god in him the third was that he had charged him to have held things which he did not For this he answered that he had spoken since with the said brother, and for the two points, that a believer should be more than a creature, and that there should be a personal union between the Holy Ghost and a believer. He had denied to hold either of them, but by necessary consequence he doth hold them both. For he holds, said he, that there is a real union with the person of the Holy Ghost, and then of necessity it must be personal, and so a believer must be more than a creature, viz., God man, even Christ Jesus for though in a true union the two terms may still remain the same etc as between husband and wife he is a man still and she a woman for the union is only in sympathy and relation yet in a real or personal union it is not now whether this were agreeable to the doctrine of the church or not he left the church to judge hoping that the lord would direct our teacher to clear these points fully as he had well done in good measure already withal he made this request to the brother which he said he did seriously and affectionately that seeing these variances grew and some estrangement withal from some words and phrases which were of human invention and tended to doubtful disputation rather than to edification and had no footing in scripture nor had been in use in the purest churches for three hundred years after christ that for the peace of the church etc they might be forborne he meant person of the holy ghost in real union and concluded that he did not intend to dispute the matter as not having place or calling thereunto then Yet if any brother desired to see what light he walked by, he would be ready to impart it to him. How this was taken by the congregation did not appear, for no man spake to it. A day or two after, the same brother wrote his mind fully with such scriptures and arguments as came to hand, and sent it to Mr. Cotton. 9. November, the 8th A new church was gathered at Sagus, now Lynn. The governor and deputy were not there, being led by the coming in of a ship and other occasions. It held the company two days, Mr. Whiting, footnote, Samuel Whiting had been a minister at Lynn Regis in Norfolk, and savage surmises gave the name to Lynn. He was a respected figure in the colonial church, in footnote, he was to be the pastor being very unskilful in church matters, and those who were to be members not fit for such a work. At last six were accepted with Mr. Whiting, but with much ado. Twelfth, a commission was sent out to the chancery in England to some private men here to examine witnesses in a cause depending there, but nothing was done in it, nor any return made. Seventeenth, two ships arrived here from London, and one a week before. They were full of passengers, men, women, and children. One of them had been from London twenty-six weeks, and between land and land eighteen weeks, the other two something less time their beer all spent and leaked out a month before their arrival so as they were forced to stinking water and that very little mixed with sack or vinegar and their other provisions very short and bad yet through the great providence of the lord they came all safe on shore and most of them sound and well liking they had continual tempests and when they were near the shore being brought two or three days with a strong east wind the weather was so thick all that time as they could not make land and the seamen were in great perplexity when on the sudden the fog cleared so as they saw Cape Ann fair on their starboard bow, and presently grew thick again, yet by their compass they made their harbor. There were aboard that ship two godly ministers, Mr. Nathaniel Rogers and Mr. Partridge. Footnote. Rogers and Partridge were installed respectively at Ipswich and Duxbury, and are celebrated in Cotton Mather's Magnalia, like many more of the preachers who pass in the review. In footnote and many good people in that and the other ships and we had prayed earnestly for them for a small pinnace of thirty tons which came out with them and was come in three weeks before brought us news of their coming In one of the other ships the passengers had but half a point of drink for a day fourteen days together yet through the lord's mercy did all well one of the ships was overset in the night by a sudden gust and so lay half an hour yet righted of herself Cattle was grown to high rates, a good cow 25 pounds or 30 pounds, a pair of bulls or oxen 40 pounds. Corn was now at 5 shillings, the bushel, and much rye was sown with the plow this year, for about 30 plows were at work. Bread was at 9 and 10 shillings, the carpenters at 3 shillings the day, and other workmen accordingly. Things went not well at Connecticut. Their cattle did, many of them cast their young as they had done the year before. Monsieur de Alny, footnote. Charles de Meneu, Sieur de Alnachany, for a detailed account of the French enterprises with which Massachusetts became connected. See C. C. Smith, Massachusetts, and the neighboring jurisdictions in the Memorial History of Boston, Volume 1, page 282, et sequiari in footnote. Captain of Penobscot, or Pintaguit returned answer to the governor's letter wherein he professed that they claimed no further than to Pimiquid, nor would unless he had further order, and that he supposed that the cause why he had no order, etc., was that the English ambassador had dealt effectually with the Cardinal of France for settling the limits of our peace, etc. The governor, Mr. Vane, a wise and godly gentleman, held with Mr. Cotton and many others the indwelling of the person of the Holy Ghost and the believer, and went so far beyond the rest as to maintain a personal union with the holy ghost but the deputy footnote winthrop now deputy governor magnanimously opens here the record of his difference with vane now governor who supported mrs hutchinson in footnote with the pastor and divers others denied both and the question proceeded so far by disputation and writing for the peace sake of the church which all were tender of as at length they could not find the person of the holy ghost in scripture nor in the primitive churches three hundred years after Christ. So that, all agreeing in the chief matter of substance viz that the Holy Ghost is God, and that He doth dwell in the believers, as the father and son both are said also to do, but whether by His gifts and power only, or by any other manner of presence, seeing the Scripture doth not declare it, it was earnestly desired that the word person might be forborne, being a term of human invention and tending to doubtful disputation in this case. Timber, December the governor receiving letters from his friends in england which necessarily required his presence there imparted the same to the council and some others and being thereupon resolved of his return into england called the court of deputies to the end he might have free leave of the country etc they being assembled in court and himself declaring the necessity of his departure and those of the council affirming the reasons to be very urgent thought not fit to be imparted to the whole court they desired respite to consider thereof till the morning when one of the assistants using some pathetical passages of the loss of such a governor in a time of such danger as did hang over us from the indians and french the governor brake forth into tears and professed that however the causes propounded for his departure were such as did concern the utter ruin of his outward estate yet he would rather have hazarded all than have gone from them at this time if something else had not pressed him more viz the inevitable danger he saw of god's judgments to come upon us for these differences and dissensions which he saw amongst us and the scandalous imputations brought upon himself as if he should be the cause of all and therefore he thought it best for him to give place for a time etc upon this the court concluded that it would not be fit to give way to his departure upon these grounds whereupon he recalled himself and professed that the reasons concerning his own estate were sufficient to his own satisfaction for his departure and therefore desired the court might have leave to go as for the other passage it slipped him out of his passion and not out of judgment upon this the court consented silently to his departure then the question was about supply of his place some were of opinion that it should be executed by the deputy but this scruple being cast in, that if the deputy should die, then the government would be vacant, and none have power to call any court or to preside therein, etc., it was agreed to call a court of elections for a new governor and deputy, in case the present deputy should be chose governor, and an order was made, in regard of the season, that such as would might send their votes by proxy, and paper sealed up and delivered to the deputies. And so this court was adjourned four days, and two days after the court of elections was to assemble these things thus passed diverse of the congregation of boston met together and agreed that they did not apprehend the necessity of the governor's departure upon the reasons alleged and sent some of them to declare the same to the court whereupon the governor expressed himself to be an obedient child of the court and therefore notwithstanding the lights of the court yet without the leave of the church he durst not go away whereupon a great part of the court and country who understood hereof declared their purpose to continue him still in his place and therefore so soon as the day of election came and the country was assembled it was thought the best way for avoiding trouble etc not to proceed to election but to adjourn the court to the next general court in may and so the court of deputies etc continued still for the other court was not called at this court the elders of the churches were called to advise with them about discovering and pacifying the differences among the churches in point of opinion The governor having declared the occasion to them, Mr. Dudley desired that men would be free and open, etc. Another of the magistrates spake that it would much further the end they came for if men would freely declare what they held different from others, as himself would freely do, in what point soever he should be opposed. The governor said that he would be content to do the like, but that he understood the ministers were about in a church way, etc., which he spake upon this occasion the ministers had met little before and had drawn into heads all the points whereupon they suspected mr cotton did differ from them and had propounded them to him and pressed him to a direct answer affirmative or negative to every one which he had promised and taken time for this meeting being spoke of in the court the day before the governor took great offense at it as being without his privity etc which this day mr peter told him as plainly of with all due reverence and how it saddened the minister's spirits that he should be jealous of their meetings or seem to restrain their liberty etc the governor excused his speech as sudden and upon a mistake mr peter told him also that before he came within less than two years since the churches were in peace etc the governor answered, that the light of the gospel brings a sword, and the children of the bondwoman would persecute those of the free woman. Mr. Peter also besought him humbly to consider his youth, and short experience in the things of God, and to beware of peremptory conclusions, which he perceived him to be very apt unto. He declared further that he had observed, both in the low countries and here, three principal causes of new opinions and divisions thereupon. One, pride, new notions lifted up to the mind, etc two idleness three blank mr wilson made a very sad speech of the condition of our churches and the inevitable danger of separation if these differences and alienations among brethren were not speedily remedied and laid the blame upon these new opinions risen up amongst us which all the magistrates except the governor and two others did confirm and all the ministers but two in this discourse one question arose about sanctification mr cotton in his sermon that day had laid down this ground that evident sanctification was an evidence of justification and thereupon had taught that in cases of spiritual desertion true desires of sanctification was found to be sanctification and further if a man were laid so flat upon the ground as he could see no desires etc but only as a bruised reed did wait at the feet of christ yet here was matter of comfort for this as found to be true the question here grew whether any of these or evident sanctification could be evidence to a man without a concurrent side of his justification the governor and mr cotton denied it the speech of mr wilson was taken very ill by mr cotton and others of the same church so as he and divers of them went to admonish him but mr wilson and some others could see no breach of rule seeing he was called by the court about the same matter with the rest of the elders and exhorted to deliver their minds freely and faithfully both for discovering the danger and the means to help, and the things he spake of were only in general, and such as were under a common fame. And being questioned about his intent, he professed he did not mean Boston Church, nor the members thereof, more than others. But this would not satisfy, but they called him to answer publicly. 31. And there the governor pressed it violently against him, and all the congregation, except the deputy and one or two more, and many of them with much bitterness and reproaches, but he answered them all with words of truth and soberness and with marvelous wisdom. It was strange to see how the common people were led, by example, to condemn him in that which, it was very probable, the verse of them did not understand. Footnote. It may well be believed that plain men and women were deeply embarrassed in trying to understand what Savage calls, quote, the deadly, unintelligible opinions, end quote, to which those whom they loved and respected were giving currency. In footnote nor the rule which he was supposed to have broken, and that such as had known him so long, and what good he had done for that church, should fall upon him with such bitterness for justifying himself in a good cause, for he was a very holy, upright man, and for faith and love inferior to none in the country, and most dear to all men. The teacher joined with the church in their judgment of him, and not without some appearance of prejudice, yet with much wisdom and moderation. They were eager to proceed to present censure, but the teacher stayed them from that, telling them he might not do it because some opposed it but gave him a grave exhortation the next day mr wilson preached notwithstanding and the lord so assisted him as gave satisfaction and the governor himself gave public witness to him one of the brethren footnote winthrop himself no doubt whose suffering over being out of sympathy with cotton and in general over the distractions was acute in footnote. Wrote to Cotton about it, and laid before him diverse failings, as he supposed, and some reasons to justify Mr. Wilson, and dealt very plainly with him. Mr. Cotton made a very loving and gentle answer, clearing his intentions and persisting in his judgment of Mr. Wilson's offense, laying down diverse arguments for it. The said brother replied to him in like-loving manner, and desired leave to show his letter to Mr. Wilson, which he readily assented unto. But for answer to his arguments, he forbore to reply to Mr. Cotton, because he was overburdened with business, but wrote to the two ruling elders whom the matter most concerned, and by way of defense of Mr. Wilson answered all Mr. Cotton's arguments. Upon these public occasions, other opinions break out publicly in the Church of Boston, is that the Holy Ghost dwelt in a believer as he is in heaven, that a man is justified before he believes, and that faith is no cause of justification, and others spread more secretly is that the letter of the scripture holds forth nothing but a covenant of works, and that the covenant of grace was the spirit of the scripture, which was known only to believers, and that this covenant of works was given by Moses in the Ten Commandments, that there was a seed, viz. Abraham's carnal seed, went along in this, and there was a spirit and life in it, by virtue whereof a man might attain to any sanctification and gifts and graces, and might have spiritual and continual communion with Jesus Christ, and yet be damned. After, it was granted, that faith was before justification, but it was only passive, an empty vessel, etc., but in conclusion the ground of all was found to be assurance by immediate revelation. All the congregation of Boston, except four or five, closed with these opinions, or the most of them, but one of the brethren, footnote Winthrop himself, in footnote, wrote against them and bore witness to the truth, together with the pastor, and very few others joined with them about this time the rest of the ministers taking offense at some doctrines delivered by mr cotton and especially at some opinions which some of his church did broach and for he seemed to have too good an opinion of and too much familiarity with those persons drew out sixteen points and gave them to him entreated him to deliver his judgment directly in them which accordingly he did and many copies thereof were dispersed about some doubts he well cleared but in some things he gave not satisfaction the rest of the ministers replied to these answers, and at large showed their dissent and the grounds thereof. And at the next general court held ninth of the first, footnote, March ninth, sixteen thirty six, sixteen thirty seven, in footnote, they all assembled at Boston and agreed to put off all lectures for three weeks, that they might bring thanks to some issue. One Mister Glover of Dorchester, having laid sixty pounds of gunpowder in bags to dry in the end of his chimney, it took fire and some went up the chimney other of it filled the room and passed out a door into another room and blew up a gable end a maid which was in the room having her arms and neck naked was scorched and died soon after a little child in the arms of another was scorched upon the face but not killed two men were scorched but not much the verse pieces which lay charged in several places took fire and went off but did no harm the room was so dark with smoke as those in the house could find neither window nor door and when neighbors came in none could see each other a good time for smoke the house was thatched yet took not fire yet when the smoke was gone many things were found burnt another great providence was that three little children being at a fire a little before they went out to play though it were a very cold day and so were preserved end of section eight